Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. That moment your holy laughter rose. When I recognized the sound. When I knew it was that old mirth. It was that same bellow of joy that once stirred. It was the laughter that broke the sadness. The laughter that lifted the cloak, that lifted the sadness and inhabited It's back. A voice I longed to hear, but whose sweet tones I had almost forgotten. Too soft. Too subtle. Too strong. Unshakable. Gentle. Steel. You're welcome. Welcome. I will take my shoes off. I wouldn't want to traipse the mud and the dust in. I am nothing. Nothing. Dust. What can I clasp to in such a presence? How could I endure? What use is my mask, my pretension, my make-believe when the light penetrates? Unhidden. Laid bare. Bereaved of my own grandeur, for I stand before yours. Have you ever experienced the holiness of God? Thanks, Tom. (laughs) That was a poem that I've read here before a few years ago, but it was a poem that I wrote in the midst, right in the midst of an experience that I can only describe as the presence of God's holiness. It was 2016, we were in a Friday night worship service at Battelle in the UK, and my sister was, was leading worship, and we were singing over and over again the song, There's no place I would rather be but here in your love, here in your love, and we kept singing that over and over again, and all of a sudden she jumps up from the keys, imagine Tom sitting there you know, on the keys, and all of a sudden she jumps up in the middle of that song, and she starts running around the room just ecstatically jumping and shouting for joy. And you say, bunch of charismaniacs. (laughs) If you know my sister, though, you know that that's completely out of character for her. She's never done anything like that before, and I've never seen her do anything like that ever since. And the reason was, she was overcome in that moment with the holiness of God. And it it was incredible. 
So Battelle is one of the few church settings where it's a majority of men rather than majority of women or a mix of men and women. It's a majority of men. And all of a sudden, as she did that, what you saw was the men coming out of their, their aisles into the, to, to the front where the cross was and just laying on their faces on the floor. I, I took a photo of it from inside the drum booth. I was playing drums. And, and all of a sudden, I found myself doing the same thing. I came out and just laid on my face on the floor because it felt like there was nothing else I could do. The sense of God's presence and holiness was just so heavy. And so it was this presence of glory that was palpable to everyone in the room. So who are we and how are we to live in light of the holiness of God? That's what we want to explore today as we continue our series. This is who we are from the book of 1 Peter. And you may have seen these little bookmarks that are available as you're coming in and and leaving that, that have seven statements and they are intended to be a summary of what the book of 1 Peter tells us about who we are, not just as individuals in Christ, but as a community in Christ. And so there's seven affirmations that we can draw out of the book of 1 Peter, and there's many more, but we're focusing on seven, and they're printed out there so that you can remember you can take them home as we learn about them. And last week we saw that we are the people that rejoice because we are hopeful. We rejoice no matter what because we are born again into a living hope. And today we're going to see that we as a people obey because we are holy. In Christ, we obey because we are holy. So let's read, carry on in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13 and read to verse 21. So starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore, So bearing in mind everything that's come before, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So our title today is People of Holiness. And even as I say that, and even as I begin to talk about this passage where it says you are holy, you might look around at the church, you might look around at yourself and and the church at large, and you might say, no, we're not. (laughs) No, I'm not. 
We're anything but holy. I'm anything but holy. Don't you know what's inside of me? And I think if there's anything that the, the, the world around us has become convinced of, especially this part of the world, it's that Christians and the church is anything but holy. And so there's still, however, this awareness that... Um, we should be holy. There's an awareness kind of in the culture and even within the church that if that's not what we are, well, it is what we should be. And so, Peter goes a lot further than just saying we should be holy. Actually, when you read on in chapter 2, he goes on to say that we are a holy nation. When I say we, I'm talking about anyone who has been born again into that living hope of Christ. Anyone who is in Christ, who has given themselves to him as Lord, enters a new people, a new humanity. Jesus has taken anyone in him, has gone from being a son of Adam to being a son of God. And so Jesus has started this whole new branch of humanity. So that's, that's the we that I'm talking about. It's not just we in this room. It's not just we in NC4. It's this we of, of all the people around the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation that, have, that Christ has gathered to himself. We are a holy nation. Peter says it's not just what we should be, but it's actually what we are. Now, part of the reason that we don't get this is that we don't use the word. When was the last time you used the word holy in your day-to-day life? There's a lot of us in education and, and, and healthcare. When's the last time holiness came up at work? It's probably the last time that one of your coworkers, you know, got religion and like stopped smoking or stopped doing whatever. And so someone might say, oh, I don't know what's going on with that person. You know, they, they got holy or something. So we, we use it in this religious context and it, ver- it has kind of little meaning outside of that. And I think most of the time we think about it in terms of holiness means moral goodness. It means someone who's holy is someone who just doesn't sin. And so that, that is a small part of it. But what we're going to see today is that if we stop there, it's actually a massive reduction of what holiness means. And if we stop there, we end up missing out on something absolutely essential that we need to know and something far bigger, far more beautiful than we've imagined. So let's start with a definition. What does holiness mean? Well, I think at the very simplest level, holiness is utter uniqueness that demands proper response. Holiness is utter uniqueness that demands proper response. Well, what does that mean? Let me explain it this way. Some nights I get home late from work, late from the office, and it's time to put the, bed, the kids to, to sleep, and I go right upstairs and, you know, kick my shoes off and sit on top of the, of the bed and snuggle up to read a bedtime story. And some of you may not have noticed that I am a male of the Caucasian variety, okay? My wife, who is of the Caribbean variety, she very gently reminds me, get off the bed with your outside clothes. Why are you sitting on the bed with your outside clothes? And so why does she say that? She says that because there's something special and unique about the space of the bed that is reserved for a certain purpose 
And it demands a proper response, i.e. that you don't wear dirty outside clothes on it. So every one of us understands holiness within the context of our homes. It's the same reason why you don't eat dinner in the bathroom. Yeah? But we do brush our teeth in the bathroom. Explain that one to me. I don't know. (laughs) So we all understand holiness within the home, okay? But I want to push this a little further to, to help us see a different kind of holiness because I want you to imagine... Hundreds of years ago, there's, there's a great famous king, and he's got a, a wooden cup. It's just a common cup, nothing particularly special about it. This is not the golden goblet used for the, the ceremonies of state. It's not the, the fine china cup that's used for hospitality of, of the guests. This is just the regular wooden cup that he uses to drink water. And yet, it's unique because it belongs to the great king. Now imagine that that cup, the king dies and the cup kind of gets lost and eventually it becomes buried and it is under all this rubble and dust and hundreds of years later it's discovered in an archaeological dig. What does the archaeologist do with that cup? Well, they carefully dig it out. They dust it off. They clean it up. Right? They set it aside. They put it on a pedestal in a museum for everyone to gawk at. And it's not because there's anything particularly special within the cup. The reason that it's set apart is not because there's something special in itself, but because of who it's associated with. And so it's not unique in itself, but it's unique because of who it's associated with. And so God is holy in himself. He's utterly unique in power and beauty and goodness. And so we know that approaching him deserves proper response. It requires certain proper behavior. But here's the thing. When Jesus Christ, when God the Son looks at you and says, you belong to me, you are mine, you are associated with me, you're part of my family, now, even though every single one of us is nothing but a common sinner, guess what? We become utterly holy, set apart, special, unique, not in ourselves, but because we are associated with the king. We're associated with him. God says in the passage we read, because I am holy, you shall be holy. And I read both a statement of fact and a command in that statement. The statement of fact is this, that we are holy because we belong to him. In the same way that that common cup is holy because it belonged to the great king. We belong to him, and so therefore our holiness in him demands a certain response. but there's also a command in there that you, you shall live in a holy way because of who I've made you to be. And so here's, here is the, if you come away with nothing else in this whole message, this, here's the thing. Absolutely essential for us as a community to understand this next point. We obey because we are holy. Not the other way around. 
The reason that we obey him and we live our lives of of obedience towards him is that we are holy. It's not the other way around that we become holy as we obey him. That's a really important point because religion will tell you that what makes you set apart That what makes you special, that what makes you set apart for God and acceptable to him is that if you live a certain way, if you continue in that way long enough, then one day you will become acceptable before God and you'll be able to be set apart with all the other special and holy people. In other words, your moral performance is what sets you apart and makes you special. The gospel says, no, this is, this is why the gospel is inclusive to everyone, because there's only very, very few people who could ever make a claim to being really morally special. That doesn't apply to me. I don't know how many of us out here it applies to. It doesn't apply to me. The good news, the gospel is good news to me because it does apply to me, because it says, Jesus has chosen you, and because he's chosen you, you are holy. You are special. You are acceptable to him. Now, go live it out. You are holy. Go live like it. He's chosen you. He's associated you with his greatness, with his goodness. And so it's not about us. It's not about you. It's because you belong to him. We're set apart by belonging to him. He's made us sons and daughters of God. And so we obey him not in order to be set apart, but we obey him because we are already set apart. But here's the thing. Just like sometimes I wear my outside clothes on the bed, (laughs) just like the king's cup was buried and covered in dirt for hundreds of years, We, as his children, we often, and by the way, neither of those things removed the holiness from the objects that we're talking about, right? But we, as his children, we often simply don't respond in the proper way that our holiness requires, that our holiness demands. So why is that? Why is it that there's such a gap often between who God says we are and the way we actually live it out? Obviously, I can't get into the fullness of that picture because it's very personal and it's very complex. But I think Peter talks about two things in this passage that help us understand that gap. He says, given that we're not only exiles, but we are chosen exiles, and we got into that last week if you want to understand more of what that means, but we're set apart for Jesus, and he says two things. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and Be sober-minded. So it speaks to two things. It speaks to intention and intoxication. And so the first point I want to bring out here about intention is this. We are defiled by lack of intention. The ESV translation that we read there, it says, preparing your mind for action. And Unfortunately, that loses a little bit of Peter's original imagery. The King James gets it a little closer, which is, it says, gird the loins of your mind. That's an interesting image. Gird gird up the loins of your mind. And And the picture there is of a worker in ancient times drawing together his robes, tightening his belt for work. It's girding up everything that's loose so that you're ready for action. 
And so it's an image of intentionally preparing yourself to get down to business. Now, one of the authors I mention a lot, Dallas Willard, he, he points out in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, that one of the main reasons that many Christians don't grow, they never mature, they never actually lead a life of holiness, it's not that they don't want to, it's that they simply never intend to. They never actually make the definite, set, fixed, willing intention to do it. And the thing is, no matter how much you desire a change in your life, it never is going to actually realize unless you make a firm intention to head in that direction. So we, we see God's holiness, we, we see Jesus, and we're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live that way? And the question for us is, have we ever actually decided to do it, to put it into action? And the mistake I think that we make is we think that it just means intending to obey him in the moment. Okay, so Jesus says, turn the other cheek. So we think, okay, if I'm, in the, if I'm ever in the position where somebody slaps me on the cheek, well, I know in that moment, what I got to do is, is turn the other cheek, right? And if you've ever been in a situation where you're publicly defamed or you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're in the kind of situation that he's talking about and you try and just do it in the moment, you, you, you find out it's actually really, really hard. And you, 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 you more likely find out that your automatic reaction to that situation is to throw a punch. Why? Because most of our behavior, it's not down to what you're consciously deciding to do in the moment. Something, well, well above 90% of our behavior is the automatic response of our habits. It's the things that your habits have ingrained in you that in the moment you automatically respond. It's not a conscious choice. And what, what we're talking about there is your character. 99 or, or whatever it is, percent of our actions are, are subconscious and they arise out of our character. It's simply what we do naturally. It's our, it's our automatic responses to life. And so it's not just about intending to obey in the moment. It's about the habits of life that are forming your character that determine how you're going to respond in that moment. So there's a really easy picture, which is, you know, think of an Olympic runner. An Olympic runner doesn't just turn up on race day, you know, and, and just go for it, right? The, the reason that they're able to run in the way that they do when the situation calls for it, it's not just effort in the moment. It's an entire lifestyle of habits and disciplines, very few of which have to do with any kind of running, Right? It's correct eating. It's, the, it's getting the right amount of sleep. It's, it's the right exercises. It's having the right attire. It's tying your shoelaces before you start to run. It's all of these things that when the moment that the gun goes off, their, their body is trained to do what their will wants it to do. And so it's the same with our character. It takes conscious effort and determination of habits that shape who we are. And here's the thing. The reason we're going into this, this series of this is who we are is that this does not happen in isolation as an individual. Your character is formed in the context of community. 
I mentioned in the last series, our, every single one of our brains, brain scientists will tell us, your brain, six times every second, is trying to answer the question, not just how should I act in this moment, but how do my people act in this situation? We're constantly judging how to correctly act, and it comes out of our group identity, not our individual identity. So, the question for us, all right, when it comes to turn the other cheek, and we find out that it's actually really difficult, you know, we either kind of let ourselves off the hook and say, well, Jesus is just talking about some ideal. He's only talking about himself or, you know, maybe what's going to happen to us in heaven. Or we say, well, we just spiritualize it. We say, you know, maybe he just means turn, your, turn, turn the other cheek of your heart. Well, what if we cultivate a life where we're habitually praying for our enemies? where we're forgiving people when they slight us in little ways so that when there's this extreme situation that he talks about, our natural inclination is not to retaliate. Because when you picture Jesus on the cross forgiving the people killing him, do you picture him gritting his teeth and like, oh, God, I really don't want to do this, but, you know, forgive them? No, no you see that it's the fruit of Jesus' life, that it's the most natural thing in the world that he would forgive his enemies. We are holy. And to live in the reality of that, it takes girding up our loins. It takes preparing our minds for work. And so it leads us to our second thing that Peter mentions, which he says, he says, be sober-minded. In other words, if you want to live like you're holy, don't be drunk in your mind. Why not? Well, it's the next point. Drunkenness of mind dulls us to the reality of God. What are we talking about when we talk about drunkenness? Well, drunkenness, as you all well know, it's what we talk about as the effect of intoxication through alcohol. It's it's basically temporary brain poisoning that humans have been doing for thousands of years. It's kind of dumb if you think about it, but <laughs> what happens is the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain, that part of the brain gets, gets temporarily incapacitated, and that's the part of the brain that has to do with the ability to focus, with the, the regulation of social behavior. It has to do with this, the area of the brain of decision-making, of language, and how fast you perform motor skills. All right. So the reason people enjoy getting drunk is that it loosens your inhibitions. It loosens your social fears. It loosens your tongue, your muscles, and it relaxes all of that. But the danger, of course, is that it also deadens your senses to a degree. It slows down your reactions to the reality around you. And so the result is you don't fear what you would usually fear. You say what you wouldn't usually say. You don't respond in the way that you would usually respond. How is it that we as Christians who claim to believe and follow the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent creator God of the universe, how is it that we can tolerate so much impurity in our own lives? How is it that we can tolerate so much unholiness 
in our lives and just get used to it. It looks a lot like a kind of drunkenness, Peter says. Our minds are intoxicated. And I like the way that one commentator puts it. He says, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. When we do that, we're in, when we're in Christ and we do that, we're not in our right minds. We're dull to the reality, to the grandeur, to the, the power of the living God. And here's the thing. None of us would do that in a million years if we could see him, right? If you could see Jesus, if you could see God, we would never dream of using foul language. We'd never dream of, of treating people with the disdain that we often treat people. We would never dream of being dishonest with money or, or, or withholding rights from people. Why? Because he is holy. And because we are also holy by belonging to him, it would never enter our minds. But here's the thing. Our senses are dulled. They're dulled through this kind of drunkenness of mind. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about just the outright, obvious, blatant sin. When you think about drunkenness, it comes from a state of overindulgence, of something that in itself is not bad or wrong, actually something good that God created, but when you, when you give yourself to it, when you overindulge, what happens is it brings intoxication. And I think as we examine our lives, we have these symptoms of drunkenness that come from being full, being satiated with entertainment. with wealth, with activity and sport and success and family and all these good things that we give ourselves over into. We, we overindulge in their goodness and all of a sudden they become better to us than the presence of God. And if we're not careful, we get intoxicated with God's good gifts rather than with the good creator. We, we begin to miss his superior holiness. And I think that's exactly the seductive nature of sin because most often it doesn't come through these, these blatantly evil things. It comes through good things that start to consume too much of our attention. They begin to dull us to the presence of God. It's the same reason why sometimes I catch myself that, why is it that I always have to be listening to something? I've always got to have music or a podcast or, or, or something on, something that's occupying my mind rather than being still in the presence of God. It's this, it's this inability to be still with him. 
We talked about that in the, in the, in the prayer series a bit, but you know what one of the marks of sobriety is? You're appropriately afraid of the things that you actually should be afraid of. And so here's the next point. Fear always accompanies the presence of holiness. Peter says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And you say, well, Ian, you know, we're an evangelical church, all right? Isn't God love? Doesn't he command us hundreds of times in scripture, do not fear? You say, well, and doesn't fear, it doesn't mean like fear, it means respect, it means reverence. Well, here's the thing. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but any time in Scripture where someone finds themselves in the presence of God, what do they do? They fall on their face in terror. And it's interesting, when I, when I, when I read the, the Greek of this word fear, it means fear. <laughs> or Terror. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> so how do these things fit together? We can understand how God's power would be fearful, right? We can even understand how he, as the, the, the perfect moral, you know, good judge could be fearful. But how is it that a God of love could be fearful? Well, think about it like this. All right, so when we talk about holiness, it, we're talking about superlativeness. We're talking about qualities that are just beyond comprehension and how wonderful and how great they are. And so when you're in the presence of something, of someone that is truly, uniquely great in power or, or strength or understanding or beauty or some sort of skill, when you're even in the presence of you know, a, a clear night sky and you can see the grandeur of the universe. But even when you're just with a person who displays one of those qualities, is that a good presence to be in? Yeah, it is. These are the things that we, we, we long for, we crave for. We, these are the things that we praise in people that we think have these qualities. And yet at the same time, if you're actually with that person, it's, it's terrifying too. Why? Because you suddenly see the reality of your qualities. <laughs> and so, you know, I, usually I give a sports example and I always use Michael Jordan. But, you know, if you're in a pickup game and you're the best guy on court and all of a sudden, you know, LeBron James turns up, just for variety's sake. <laughs> Obviously not quite as great, but all of a sudden... Wow, it's amazing he's there, but also at the same time, wow, I'm really bad at this. <laughs> right? You know, it's like being the, the best singer in your little town, and then you go try out for Broadway, and there's 15 people just in the waiting room who are infinitely superior to your singing ability. <laughs> You're in the presence of greatness, and even, Tim Keller points out that even if you were in the presence of perfect love, which we think of as this utterly good thing, if you were in the presence of perfect love, all of a sudden you would realize, I've never really loved anyone or anything in my entire life. You would suddenly realize, I am incredibly self-absorbed. 
I am incredibly selfish. And so at the same time, it's this wonderful presence and, at the, and it's also terrifying. And in the presence of perfect love, you would say, I would say like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, he, he cries out in the presence of God. He says, woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Because being in the presence of God, it immediately reveals our own fallen sinfulness, our own inadequacy. But here's the thing. When you see that, you're not drunk anymore. When you are not drunk, you are afraid of such a thing. Why? Because it is right to be afraid of it. But when we're drunk, we're comfortable acting in ways that we would never dream of when we're sober. So if you claim to live in the presence of the reality of God and you've never felt that that sense of fear before his holiness, or if you're in a time in your life where you realize, I've become comfortable with a level of ignoring him, a level of impurity, then maybe I'm more drunk than I realize. And that's also the thing, it sneaks up on you. (laughs) Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And the word conformed there, it's literally to be systematized. The world that we live in, it is systematized to ignoring God's presence to denying God's presence even. And because of that, when we don't have a strong group identity that says, no, we're, we're part of the people that belong to Jesus, we become systematized to ignoring our set-apartness. And when that happens, it tells us that, that the way of life that Jesus says belongs to his people, it starts to look ineffective, it starts to look repressive. It starts to look like it's stuck in the past. But here's the thing. Holy living is to be in touch with reality. To live a life of holiness, it's not passe, it's not quaint. It's actually to be in touch with the nature of how things actually are. But as long as you're drunk on the things of this world, God God can be a concept. Yeah? But when the reality of God enters your life, it rearranges things. Anytime the presence of God shows up in Scripture, there's an earthquake. And that's because the reality of God is more substantial than us. It's heavier than us. God's glory has a greater mass than anything in our universe. And so whenever something heavier, something more solid, lands on something lighter, what does it do? It rearranges its molecules How could it do anything else? (laughs) And so the question is, and I'm preaching to myself here, everybody, what is more real to us? What is more real to me? 
Is, 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 is my desire for food, my desire for reputation, my desire for time with my family or, or success in my career or, or is, is the culture around me and its attitudes towards my life, is that more real to me than the living God? We are the people who order our lives around God's presence and not the other way around. Our temptation is, well, yeah, I believe in God. I'll fit him in. I'll fit him into my life, into my schedule. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll do the stuff, right? Peter says, no, we are the ones who live in touch with the reality that God is realer. He's heavier. He is more substantial than all of those things. He doesn't fit into our lifestyle. When we belong to him, we fit around him, (laughs) his plan, his his suggestion of what's going to bring the greatest fruit in your life. We obey him and allow him to rearrange us. And so that appears crazy to the world. When Peter's writing this to first century Christians living in the Roman world, the Romans were absolutely fine with whatever deity deity you wanted to worship, as long as it fit within the system. Right? Christians said, no, he is Lord. He's the one true God. Christians were actually called atheists to begin with because they denied the pantheon of Roman deities. Christians turned up and said, Jesus is Lord. And so that rearranges the power dynamics of our relationships. It rearranges how men treat women, how rich treat poor, how strong treat weak. We don't fit into the system of what human nature and the world tells us is a better way to live. We fit around God's will. It rearranged how Christians used their bodies. We are the people that treat our bodies as temples to the Holy Spirit. We're the people that treat sex, therefore, as a holy act between a man and woman in covenant together. Here's another thing that blew my mind recently. The Romans routinely practiced abortion, infanticide. It was common practice. Christians and Jews were the first people that came around and said, we believe that God has made humanity in his image, and therefore, we don't practice those things. This is who we are. It changed how they spent their money, how they spent their time, because we are people that live in a universe pervaded by the presence of God. That's the reality that we live in. And so I'm going to draw this to a close as the, as the, the worship team comes back up, and maybe we can, we can close with chorus or song. But the question that I put to you and that I put to me is this. What does the reality of God still need to rearrange in your life? Is there an area of your life, of your daily habits and practices that the reality of God has not touched down 
and rearranged things. What if, rather than giving, you know, I know I'm meant to give, what if rather than giving what I won't miss anyway, what if I start to give to the level that I'm so generous that it affects my standard of living? That's a tough one, guys. (laughs) What if rather than fitting my time with God around my entertainment schedule or what I like to do at night, I actually fit my sleep schedule around being able to wake up earlier so that I can be lucid with God? Again, that's a tough one for me. And I don't know what it is for you. But if there's an area of your life where the the holiness of God has not touched down and rearranged it, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what that is. We obey because we are holy. And we are holy not by anything in ourselves or in our performance, but by Jesus' performance. And when you look at Jesus, he went around touching everyone that was considered impure and unholy. Jesus went and touched. And it rearranged their lives. Right? You guys can begin playing in the background. People who were impure because of sickness or sin or social distinctions. And instead of their impurity transferring to him, his purity transferred to them. In the same way Isaiah, when he's before God's glory. He confesses his, his sin, right? And, and what happens next? The angel flies out and touches his lips and says, your sin is atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. And Jesus does the same exact thing with his people. He's come and touched us, taken away our impurity and replaced it with his purity, his holiness, And then he sends us to do the same. And just like Isaiah said, here am I, I'll go. Jesus says, go into all the world and be messengers of of my uniqueness, that the whole world would know me and come to, to love me and worship me as you have. So we are the people that declare that there's nothing so secular that it cannot be made sacred. There are no untouchable people or places. We are holy. And so Jesus sends us out to live like it. Let's pray as we close. And would you you stand with me and we'll enter into just a closing song as we finish. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing truth. Lord, that we don't need to live our lives trying to become the kind of people that are set apart and and loved by you. Jesus, you've already come. You've lived the life of perfect holiness that we should have lived. And now, Lord, you are the king over all creation that if we would belong to you, we also become holy in an instant. Jesus, thank you that we get the privilege of obeying you, of following you, of, of living out that truth. Lord, if there's any areas of our lives as a community, as individuals, where we've become comfortable or tolerant of 
things that we would never dream or imagine of doing if we could see your presence. Lord, would you help us to live in the reality that we will stand before you. We will see you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Would you continue transforming us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We thank you for that good news and we set our hope on you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.